And so ends the reading, Romans 8, 31 to 39, among the most popular and well-regarded passages in all the New Testament. These verses are often read at funeral services, graveside services, or at any time there is a need for comfort and peace and assurance. Dr. Rastuni, in his commentary on Romans, said this about these verses, and, and in saying this, he was with many other commentators who said similar things. Quote, these verses are a magnificent organ crescendo in the symphony that is the book of Romans. The glory of God's government, predestination, and grace resound here in awe-inspiring majesty, end quote. And part of that majesty and, and marvelous nature of these words is the well-crafted way that Paul framed what he said here. He put all of this in the form of what I've called an unanswerable question or questions. Uh, you know, another thing that could have been said easily is that these are all rhetorical questions. If you don't know, a rhetorical question is a question that's asked not because it expects an answer, but it's more the effect that the very asking of the question uh, has on the person who hears it. Look again at what he wrote in verse 31. Uh, reading from the ESV. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see the nature of, of this question, these questions. So that statement summarizes all that precedes what he wrote, everything that he wrote up to this point in the book of Romans. Paul declared in a note of victorious hope that neither we nor our enemies are stronger than God. Martin Luther in his great commentary on the book of Romans, and in the way that only Luther can do it, he noted this, and I'm quoting him. He said, If God be for us, who is the judge of all and whose omnipotence calls into being all things, no one can be against us since everything that he has created must be subject to the Creator. And then Luther added this. In, in all the years that I've studied these passages, I've never thought about this. I mean, it's, it's a self-evident truth, but it's brilliant in its observation. He said this, So also, the reverse, or the, the contrary, the converse is true. If God be against us, no one can be for us. See, people today, especially Christians with very bad theology, they don't want to think about the fact that God could be against us and is against us when we rebel against Him and He's against those who hate Him and His law. Now, before we come to the questions specifically that have no answer or that are rhetorical questions, we need to understand a couple of things. First of all, there are a number of reasons why there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we've read, as he said in these verses already. And I want to address that very quickly. First, because there is no condemnation for us according to the law. He says that in the first part of this chapter. But then in verses 5 through 11 of this chapter, he, he tells us we're, we're not being condemned because we have been delivered from the flesh. And then thirdly, in verses 12 through 17, because we are now the children of God. And then fourthly, because we have the hope of future glory. And then fifth, because of the intercession of the Holy Spirit. He talks about that in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 8. And now Paul asks questions regarding things that might suggest 
things that can defeat God's plan for us or harm us in some way. But each question is rhetorical. It is unanswerable because there is nobody or nothing that can defeat God's plan for us. So now let's consider these questions that have no answer. First of all, in the first part of verse 31, or second part of verse 31, he asked, who is against us? Now, of course, in one sense, many people can be against us, and they are against us. We all face the three great enemies personally, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world will try to get us to conform to it if it can, and failing that, it will try to overcome us. I mean, I'm speaking, you know, metaphorically in a sense. Our flesh is also an enemy, and we are unable to escape its malicious influence across the whole span of our lives. And then back of both of those two, of course, is the third thing, and that is the devil. Now, it's interesting, the devil is described by Peter in his first epistle. We're studying that in Sunday school, by the way. He describes the devil as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, it's interesting to think about the fact that when Peter wrote those words or spoke those words, he lived in an environment or had traveled and been in environments where that was a real danger. You might, depending on where you were traveling, come across a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. So that example resonated with his original audience, perhaps in a way that we don't. Most of us don't go anywhere where we're likely to encounter a roaring lion. However, maybe another analogy that might be more relevant to us. There's a fellow that my wife and I watch a lot on YouTube. He's, a, he's what he calls a stealth camper. He goes to sort of obscure, strange places, like and I'll mention one in particular, a, a roundabout, you know, a traffic circle where there was a big cluster of trees and woods. It was a pretty big roundabout. And he would set up a camp and camp overnight, you know. Sometimes he's gone to places, and he's Canadian. He lives in uh, Western Canada. And he'll go to these out-of-the-way places, and he always carries with him a can of bear spray. Because in various parts of Canada, if you go camping and you go out in the woods for a hike or something, you may encounter a grizzly bear or a black bear. That's a real threat. And the wise camper will always have bear spray with them. So that's definitely a reality for people there. So was a roaring lion in Peter's day. So by analogy, that means there are for us plenty of enemies against us. But what are these when combined with the first half of this verse where, God, where he asked, if God is for us? If God is for us, what does any of that mean? And that, of course, is the point of Luther's statement that I quoted a moment ago. Now, before we go any further, let's understand that in these verses, we, we need to understand something of, of, of Greek language and language structure. There are four kinds of conditional clauses. Now, a conditional clause or a conditional statement is, we might call it euphemistically, an if-then statement. You know, if I get in my car and I drive for two hours, then I'll be in Columbia. That kind of thing. Conditional. If-then. If this, then that. And in the structure of these sentences, there are uh, four kinds of these conditional clauses. The word if here, in these sentences, unlike how we might use it, it's not implying doubt. It's not casting doubt. In verse 31, 
for example, the word if really means since or because, S-I-N-C-E, since or because. And there are actually some more recent translations, uh, paraphrases, that actually have it read, since God is for us. And that understanding, that correct understanding makes a big difference, a very big difference. If God is for us, since God is for us, because God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand against God? And of course, the answer is no one. Nothing and no one can defeat us if God Almighty is on our side. And that leads then to the second. We have this question in verse 32. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I recall many years ago hearing an atheist being interviewed on a radio program. This man had just published a book called Atheism, The Case Against God. And it was considered one of the most uh, powerful defenses of the atheistic point of view published in in recent memory at the time. And uh, he spoke of some of the reasons, not all of them, but one of the reasons in particular why he didn't believe in God. And he said among those reasons is that he had no assurance that if he did everything the Bible told him to do or that Christians said he needed to do or that God said he needed to do, he said, I have no reason to think that at the last minute, as I go to stand before your God, he might just change his mind and say, you know what, this guy was living a good life and he was a Christian, but I'm going to send him to hell anyway. He said he had no reason to think that might not happen. Well, you see, Paul deals with that kind of conjecture here in verse 32, which is the second question with no answer. Each of these questions is unanswerable because each is built upon undeniable truth. And the undeniable truth in these verses is that God has given us his son. You know, if Paul had merely asked this question, will God give us all things? Well, we might hesitate. We might hesitate because how could we be confident that he will give us all things? I mean, he's given us a lot, but will he give us all things? Will he give us everything? Are there not limits to God's own gracious uh, generosity? Well, perhaps, but for one big thing. The fact that God has already given us his son. Jesus is the greatest gift that God could and would give. Yet he gave him. Not Not merely to be with us in some mystical sense, in in some vaporous, misty sense. He gave him over to death so that we might be rescued from the judgment due to us for our sins. Do you realize that the Lord will be with us? With us, even in death's darkest hour. He will sustain us in death and bring us joyfully into his glorious presence at the end. And remember, or hear Paul's words to the Philippians in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Friends, what that all means is that if God gave us his son, he can be relied on to give us all the lesser things in this life as well. So that atheist I mentioned can say what he wants, but if he's really understanding Scripture and if he has the work of the Spirit in his life, he doesn't have to worry about God changing his mind at the last minute. Thirdly, the third question is in verse 33. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, to be sure, there are many who bring charges against us every day. The world, the flesh, and the devil. I, I mentioned that already. But what if we are God's elect, the apostle Paul is stating categorically, in that case, it is God who justifies us. Who could possibly secure our condemnation when the highest judge of all, God Almighty, has already acquitted us? And then the fourth question, who is going to punish or convict those who are united to Christ? Look again at chapter 8, verse 34. I'm reading this from a slightly different translation. The question is asked, who is going to convict them? It is Christ Jesus who died, even more, who was raised and who is also at God's right hand. It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us. So we have that great, great assurance. Once again, we see also that he's using legal, judicial language to speak about this, this whole point he's making. The, the, the idea, the concepts of bringing charges against someone, that implies a court, a legal proceeding. Someone being charged in that culture and in ours, they are to be represented by a defender, a lawyer, an advocate, if you will. And whom would that be for us? Jesus said in John 16 that he would send us his Holy Spirit. Now, most tra translations have that to be our helper. I will send you another helper. I will send the helper to you. That's one possible translation. But in the Greek text, it uses a word, parakletos, that was commonly used to talk about a public defender, a, a, an advocate, a legal advocate for someone in a trial. The Apostle John used the word to speak of Jesus, saying that in him we have a parakletos, an advocate with the Father in 1 John 2.1. So in both those places, it's using that same Greek term for a lawyer, a public defender. I'm sure that most of you here have seen those and this is my personal opinion, if you'll pardon me, that those annoying lawyer commercials, attorney commercials, that seem to run nonstop on just about every network and channel, even if you don't have cable TV and you're using some you know, streaming app, they're on there too. You've been in an accident? Call this number. The such-and-such such law firm can defend you and get your money back and all that kind of thing. I bring this up because just a few weeks ago now, my wife and I were down in the Low Country. We, you know, we had to attend the Presbytery meeting in, in uh, Somerville near Charleston. And I noticed all the way down Interstate 26 and, and around uh, Charleston area and Somerville, we, we saw billboards advertising the same attorneys we see advertising on TV up here in the upcountry. You see, these attorneys, they have branch offices all over the state in the bigger cities. So... We might think of what Paul is referring to here as a divine law firm with both a heavenly and earthly location. But you know, for us, the stakes are much, much higher. Because in this world, the Holy Spirit pleads for us to the Father, not some bow-tied attorney. And in heaven, Jesus pleads the value of his blood to show that we are in fact justified. And because of that, Nothing can cause us to be condemned 
by our Heavenly Father. And then we come to the final question of this most remarkable and memorable passage. And it is the most remarkable and memorable one of all. And it's, it's, it's one that, well, it's actually a couple combined into one. So I'm going to read verses 35 to 39 again. I'm this time from the ESV. He asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And with that final series of questions, he, he's searching for possible answers to it and to them. And, and he's, he's marshalling forward here all the enemies that he can think of that might separate someone from the Lord, from the love of Christ. You know, we may have to endure tribulation or distress or persecution. That is pressure from the ungodly world. We may have to under, undergo famine or nakedness. That is lack of adequate food and clothing. We may even have to experience the threat of death and perhaps even death itself in martyrdom. Paul uses words here, as hopefully you've already figured out from our Older Testament reading today. He's using language from Psalm 44, verse 22, that God's people are, for his sake, being killed all the day long. In other words, we are constantly being exposed to the risk of death and persecution. And I think you will agree with Paul that those kind of things that he lists here are real enemies indeed. But he asks the question, can even they separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer, of course, is no. A resounding no. Far from being uh, separating us from the love of Christ, he says, in all of these things, in these sufferings, in the experience and, and endurance of them, we are now more than conquerors. I like one translation puts it, we have overwhelming victory in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So the, the, the question that we want to leave here with then is what do we say to these things? How do we respond? Well, you know, for some people, uh, even some people who would call themselves Christians, they could care less. I mean, because they think of all this as just a lot of nonsense. But there are some other folks who maybe take this seriously and they get very angry and aggressive about what they're reading. Now, I mean, they take it seriously in a religious sense, not in a biblical sense. What I mean is that they do that because they don't like how God Almighty is showing special favor to some people and not to others. I mean, Paul is speaking to an excluded group of people here and speaking against people who are not included. If you are, he has already said, you are the elect. He's speaking to the elect. And if you're not among the elect, this doesn't apply to you. Now, in my humble opinion, that kind of being upset with and that kind of concern is the root of the doctrine of so-called common grace. That's a discussion for another time. But there are people, even among Reformed people, who just simply, they've got that one little area of humanism left in them 
And they're not happy with the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. Oh, they'll give the lip service to it. But when you find them starting to make excuses for God or backpedaling or putting forward doctrines that seem to contradict one thing or another. And we had a perfect example of this in our Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Bible Presbyterian Church, it was there from the beginning. It's since been removed, praise the Lord. You know, when the OPC was formed, out of which we came, Dr. Machen, J. Gerson Machen, uh, and the others, they had to decide when they adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, you know, as what would be the standard, there, was, there were a few things included in the early 20th century versions of the Confession and the especially Northern Presbyterian Church that spoke directly against the chapters in the Confession on predestination and reprobation. So even with that, people who supposedly were Reformed, some of them had come to the point where they weren't comfortable with what the Westminster Assembly wrote concerning God. But Paul here exhorts us to believe that there is now no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. And this, we are told, should fill us with abundant gladness and joy. You see, friends, for us, we believe that the love of God in Christ is the greater the greatest reality. And so, we take from this chapter the assurance that no ruler, no power can tear us away from Christ. There has not been an angel or a demon or any created thing that is strong enough to remove us from his hands. And as Paul says in verse 37, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, uh, one translation has it, we have overwhelming victory. There's another part to this that uh, I've, I think I've mentioned this in other contexts, but it's important to remember it here. Paul has in mind when he says more than conquerors, uh, the, the template of that, and again, this is something that will be immediate, re, immediately relevant to the people who first heard this, are the Roman legions who conquered almost always when they went to battle, and they went to battle a lot. And every time the legions would win a victory, I shouldn't say every time, but many times, many times there would be a, a victorious, a victory parade into the city of Rome with the Roman generals and leaders coming up to the great hall of the Senate and being given the laurel wreaths of victory and all that sort of thing. It was a common sight among people who lived in Rome. And after all, he's writing to the church at Rome. The triumphal entry after the battle is won. And Paul means to say that the Christian is an even greater conqueror than all those legions of Rome put together. He is emphatic. We are more than conquerors through Christ. And as we have read, Paul declares that nothing, neither life nor death nor any possible thing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul rejoices in these triumphant words, the total providential gracious government of the triune God. We do not live in a mindless, unplanned, haphazard universe. We live in a planned and predestined creation of the triune God. Now, of course, the humanists who are attempting to take over the world, uh, they don't like that, and they have the same agenda. See, you can't get away from predestination and absolute planning. The question is, Who's going to succeed and whose planning and predestination are you going to live under? God has already decreed it will be his way. But humanistic man never, never seems to learn the lesson. But in this world, 
even with people trying to, you know, regiment every aspect of society in this world, we, we are the ones who are the true conquerors through Christ. There is nothing, no United Nations program, no government program, no ugly oligarch living in some European city, none of them can overcome God's perfect plan for us. Neither space nor time, nor can anything else in all creation. Paul says that not even the cold, silent moment of death itself. And you think about this as we end this message today. When our heart stops beating and our lungs take in our last breath and our soul separates from our body, not even death itself will separate us from the love of Christ. I'll leave you with the words of the great Calvinistic Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who said, Christ loved you when he died, and he will love you when you die. Let us pray.